This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm so glad you're here. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I began self work a little over four years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be extremely interested in psychotherapy or emotional psychological issues and want to know more, to those of you who might have been initially diagnosed with something, you're looking for answers, or you're in a relationship that's confusing, or you're having some problems that you don't understand, but also to a group of you who might think, I don't really understand therapy, I don't get it, I'd never go, but you're curious enough to want to listen to a psychologist like me talk about different issues. And certainly what I'm hoping is that you'll get a chance to hear what it might be like to actually be in therapy. Self-work isn't therapy, but it might give you a hint of what it would be like to be in therapy. So welcome to you all. Sometimes you don't know why, but you're drawn to someone or to their story. Adam Hill is one of those people for me. I'm not much into Twitter, but I'm on it, and I'd like some of his comments. They were endearing about his relationship with his kids. Although he was a doctor, he didn't seem to have drunk the Kool-Aid that so many doctors do. Now, I think that's a part of how they handle the very gruesome things they see. So certainly I forgive them, most of them, for that kind of detachment or even, at times, arrogance. Adam instead presented himself as a thoughtful guy, as well as being a doctor who trained as a pediatric oncologist at some of the finest schools and research centers the USA has to offer. And then came the fact that he's a recovering alcoholic. He'd written a book, Long Walk Out of the Woods, which when you read the book, you totally get that he's not simply talking metaphorically in the title, but quite literally, as he nearly ended his own life in a deep sheltered place in the woods where he had sought a place to die, or thought he did, until an unexpected call from his wife woke him up to the reality of what he was doing. So I wanted to talk to this man who'd risked everything career-wise to reveal his struggle with severe depression and alcoholism. He became not only a doctor, but now he'd become a mental health advocate who's fighting to change how his profession's licensing boards and entire medical community views seeking help for mental illness or substance abuse. It's a huge problem within the military, with first responders like police officers, paramedics, with pilots and firefighters. If you reveal struggles, you'll not only be derided by others, but you may very well lose your status. What kind of chaos have we created in our culture the very people who put themselves in situations that are extremely hard to handle on a daily basis, who see and experience horror that many of us never see and will never see, who take on immense responsibility, and yet we expect them to not struggle or not talk about it, to not at times need to seek a place to heal. It makes no sense. None. You can tell I'm passionate about it. Adam's career definitely suffered, but he kept fighting on, and with the support of his wife, he stayed sober and held his head high. I found him a warm and engaging person who, at the end of the interview, looked at me and said, If there's anything I can ever do for you, please let me know. And he meant it. So I introduce to you Dr. Adam Hill. His story is riveting, 
and I hope will carry within it something important for you to hear or your loved one to listen to. So, Adam, I want to thank you for being here. I really enjoyed, I read your book in almost one sitting, taking notes, and I was just enthralled with your story. Actually, my one of my best friends, if not my best friend, is recovering alcoholic, and so I've, I've heard about her journey from a very, very personal standpoint, and I just was very touched by so much of your story and know that SelfWorks listeners will be too. Can you tell us a little bit about what your book is about. The book is called The Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. So tell us a little bit about, you know, why you came forward with your story. What is important about this book for you, especially? Yeah, first off, thank you for having me and taking the time to to read my my story. I deeply appreciate that. And it was beautifully written, by the way. Oh, Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, for me, it all started as in terms of writing the book and openly sharing my story with um, working in a medical culture where suicide is a, an epidemic. There's a, a lot of distress in the medical workforce, uh, addiction, mental health conditions that are undertreated or uh, not treated at all. And in 2016, lost a colleague to suicide, and was that, that Dr. Will? Yeah, and 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 that actually being at the time my fifth colleague lost to suicide in my young career, and at that time I'd been in recovery and um, working on myself and being su- successful in recovery, but hiding deep in shame with this piece of my story and. And that was this spark, this impetus, this moment of feeling like I had so much more to give to people in their grief and their loss and their processing and their own recovery journeys that that I wasn't giving back to other people. And it it really fueled me to start opening up and sharing and speaking and um, creating spaces for other people, hopefully that they wouldn't feel so alone in their story. And and that's you know the book came out of initially therapy for me to be honest it was therapeutic getting the words out of my head and and moving forward in my own story um but it really evolved into hopefully a a message of hope and just um an island of reprieve for anybody who's struggling to know that they're not alone i've written a book called perfectly hidden depression and and perfectionism and shame and all of that stuff and as i was reading your book i was like yes 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 <laughs> one of the people that i was lucky enough and honored to talk to was a brain surgeon and uh, at a really prestigious medical school here and he came forward and he says i've been suicidal so many times it's not even funny and it's just learning about people hiding like that it's just um, and I just think your story of coming forward is so important. Let's let's go back to the beginning for a second. I, w- I would l- love for you to talk a little bit about your childhood and how you became or did you feel like you were depressed all your life? Because this is also about recovery from depression, not just alcoholism. That's right. And and a, a piece of anxiety in there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I. I the, on the outside and and really in 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 any concrete uh, realization my my childhood was uh, a really normal one 
you know, small Midwest town, hardworking family that of teachers and educators and individuals who really loved working in the community and giving back. And, and so I had a very loving, uh, intact home, um, an older sister who I admired and, and parents I aspired to be like, um, you know, and so, but even in that context or environment, I always, I, I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. I, I felt like I didn't fit in, that I had to really strive for perfectionism or achievement as a way of validating my existence, that I was a um, somebody who hustled for worthiness or that really um, just tried to fit as a, you know, a square in a circle peg at times. And I, I felt that from early on in, in my childhood and couldn't name it, couldn't articulate it, couldn't even define it. Um, and, and that piece of my story, you know, was early childhood and adolescence and, and the integration of alcohol into my life story happened in those adolescent years. And it really served as a, a, a numbing technique, a coping mechanism, a way to feel comfortable in my own skin to fit in uh, against my social anxiety. Um, but I didn't, once again, identify it, that that's what I was doing. Um, if I can quote the book, because you could hold your liquor really, really well <laughs> and not look like you were you were inebriated. And you said it became a belief that would support my future secret life. I thought that was really poignant. Yeah. Now, well, you were bullied pretty dramatically. That's right. You know, I um, had physical, you know, abuse and bullying by uh, classmates um, and was a really slender, scrawny kid um, and was definitely, you know, picked on from that aspect for much of elementary school and middle school and made to feel different. Um, and so that was was and is and continues to be part of my story of of you know how I view myself and find my self-worth it was rooted in some of those um, episodes of my childhood um, but once again you know I didn't in, until really recovery and in my early 30s learn to name that identify it call it out as trauma or abuse or um, and and so you know I didn't have the words or the the language to ascribe to those things it's amazing to me how many times that bullying is discounted as, oh, that's not trauma. You're being overly dramatic. You know, oh, you sound like a therapist, you know, uh, but, you know, it is. It can be crucial to somebody's sense of esteem and just connection with others that you can count on. That's absolutely right. And 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 even now, you know, in a professional career and um, being successful in the daily work that I do, I continue to have to reflect upon, you know, how I feel about authority figures or how I view myself in terms of being within a work system at times where you do feel overworked or um, that I, I feel that those instincts coming back in me of being defensive against, you know, some of those things that happened when I was a child. And so it's a uh, with anything, you know, with self-work, right? It's a lifelong journey and process. And so it, it helps to kind of know where you've been to to figure out um, where you're going. I was so intrigued by the story of med school to residency to fellowship and how this growing inequity with medical recovery being celebrated and yet 
you know, mental illness recovery or you, you work through a depression or you work through PTSD or you work through bipolar disorder. I mean, none of that or you learn how to manage it. None of that is celebrated. None of that's even talked about. And the painful comparison with that is I've had a lot of people talk about it, but I'd love to hear what you got to say, especially in the medical profession. That's right. And I mean, you encapsulated it perfectly. And it's a a, a larger systemic um, cultural problem in the way that we separate but unequal treat mental health conditions versus physical health conditions and, and how we celebrate some and um, secretly hide away others. And you know, what's, um, and so I see that in the interactions with the patients and families that I care for every day and in the truth of their stories. What's even more disheartening for me is, you know, that it exists um, to a level within the medical profession when we're the ones, you know, hopefully called to be um, into spaces of healing and hope and recovery and that we know better that the, the science, the pharmacology, the pathophysiology behind these mental health and addiction conditions, and yet we tend to stigmatize and stereotype and label and um, view from this um, soapbox lens of, uh, you know, lesser than or, you know, moral corruption or the the same ways um, that are self-defeating and create barriers and obstacles in the way for people actually to get the help that they need and deserve. And so that's what, you know, has been really, you know, also a huge part of writing my story and hopefully breaking down some of that and having authentic normalization conversations um, that will allow permission and space to challenge that status quo. Mm-hmm. Gosh, two things. So many things are running through my mind. I want to share with you that my own mother had a prescription drug addiction and she saw doctor after doctor who never asked her about the root or anxiety. They just gave her all these medications and she finally became addicted to them herself. But I also, I was so struck. I believe you saw this guy in medical school. I think his name was Reggie. Mm. Is that Mm -hmm. right? And he was describing the way alcohol made him feel. I think it's, I wrote it down. It was release, relief, warmth, numb. I don't know why that stuck with me, but it did. And, you know, it's almost as if you were sitting there going, uh, I know exactly what he's talking about. And yet you were the doctor, you know. And so it must have felt very strange. And obviously it grew to be something you couldn't tolerate anymore, this secret of, these people that you were learning about, these addicts and all the pejorative language that's used around them, and that yet you you also were struggling with that. Yeah, I, I think you highlighted in, in sharing, you know, the story of your own loved one, that we all have different things in, in our lives and, and aspects of pain that um, – for for most people, you know, uh, substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder is a is a way to combat the intensity of an indescribable pain of what's going on in your life, and 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 most of the times it's viewed through that lens of a solution, right? This works mm-hmm. to treat my underlying anxiety. It allows me to feel normal during the day. It allows me to not have these repressed feelings of PTSD or trauma or abuse to just bubble to the surface so that I'm non-functional. And, and so, you know, with that lens, um, if anybody, if you've been in that position and have a lived experience of, of addiction or addiction recovery, 
there's a lot of common threads in that. And what I, you know, what I felt and I identified and I just knew that man, you know, I knew Reggie yeah. before I'd ever met him because the way he, the language he used, the word, the words he chose, the way he romanticized his substance use um, made sense to me. It calmed his nerves. It allowed him to wake up every day to do a difficult job. It, and, and I just, you know, once again, just felt like that's somebody who gets me. Yeah. And then that was really at a moment before I was in active substance use myself. Oh, really? It was. Yeah. So this was just those feelings, not even the I was in, you know, what happened then five, seven years later of really daily active alcohol use. But it was just that description of angst and anxiety and feeling and needing to numb or escape or just to calm yourself down to feel comfortable in your own skin uh, that I deeply identified with. And it was this foreshadowing moment, which is what I try to capture in this book of 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 knowing that I was um without knowing that I was headed down this path. Knowing without knowing. That's great. <laughs> I like that. So we should also tell self-work listeners that you actually became very suicidal yourself. That's right. You know, in fast forward, you know, from that moment, we were talking about having this realization moment. I um, make it through medical school residency, which with some difficulties along the way at times with mm-hmm. mental health, but it reached this pinnacle moment in my life and career where I felt like I'd finally made it. I was, you know, a practicing physician in pediatric oncology, what I had aspired to be and working at a very esteemed university at Duke University and just grateful that, you know, my my career had reached the pinch yourself to just think this is this is really my life. That's right. And yet then in those moments, you know, in, in those first few years, depression really started to to grab hold. And thinking back to those moments and experiences with Reggie, like that there's a solution, a way to calm down this and to wake up and, you know, put my one foot in front of the other and go to work the next day. And that was to me to grab a drink and um, and do that at night to sleep and to rest my mind. But it it quickly spiraled into, you know, a fifth of vodka at night to fall asleep. And with that, the depression significantly worsened pretty quickly and to the points that you allude to of, of being very actively suicidal with a with a plan and and the, the metaphor, you know, and the imagery of the book and the cover and the long walk out of the woods directly relates to those moments of being in Eno River State Park in North Carolina under an ash tree and contemplating the end of my life. And um, while also hoping to to shine a light on the fact that, you know, we all have those some really difficult moments in our lives, but we can walk out of those um you know, and, and, and that's sort of the imagery I try to capture. And, and, and you the- do a wonderful job. I, I was, I mean, I was, obviously you're still alive, so I knew the end of the story, but I, but just following your steps along the story was really fascinating to me. And what also caught my eye or my ear or whatever is how similar your story was to John Mose, who I was lucky enough to interview several months ago. And he was standing on a Seattle bridge and literally contemplating, you know, throwing himself off. By the way, I will have a trigger message on this too. So, and his, he got a cell phone call from his wife 
And it just kind of woke him up to, wait a minute, what am I doing? And I don't think yours was as much, the way you described it, as much of a wake-up moment as it was, wait, you know, and then you kind of started crawling out of the woods or something. Something kind of made you reach out to her. And uh, you may not want to answer this question. If you don't, I certainly understand your privacy. But I wondered, because you don't talk about in the book, how you and Lauren, and that's your wife, have worked through some of her own feelings about what happened in the woods that night and your own suicide. Sometimes people have very complex reactions to their partner's uh, feeling suicidal or even trying to trying to kill themselves. So do you mind sharing that? Or is that something that's kind of off off the record or not? Not you don't want on the record. That's too private. No, I appreciate that. And um, no, I'm happy to to share. And honestly, she's in the back room over here listening. Yeah. At- Hi, Lauren. (laughs) Working remotely uh, herself today. So, you know, the the truth is that um, that her story is not mine to tell, but that um, one of the most overlooked pieces of individuals in mental health and addiction recovery is is significant other spousal support and family support and how we get those individuals connected into resources of, you know, whether it's Al-Anon support groups, their own counseling, their own processing to be able to work through the complex feelings and emotions that are attached with working to rebuild relationships and to unpack all the harm that um, can be done. And so, you know, she definitely has her, her own story in doing that. And and we, you know, we dedicated ourselves to marriage counseling and couples counseling. We really put in the hard work and and she's just such a gift and, and blessing to my life that she stood by me and when when it was needed had the the hard love and accountability that was required to get me into the support and treatment that I needed, even when I didn't see it myself. And 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 that was critical for me. And so I write about this a little bit in the book, but you know, sometimes the first six months or year of recovery are the most difficult. Sure. And you know, you're making amends, you're trying to repair pathways, build your own bridges, figure out what you can control, and 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 to really for us, it was figure out who we even married, right? We were starting fresh with a new lens and a new hope, of it, but also a new life and a new way of being with each other that took time to figure out and, um, you know, fast forward 10 years later and having three young children at home and, um, you know, just feeling incredibly grateful that she stuck it out by my side and I'll never be able to, to repay that to her. That's a lovely thing to say. She probably would want to say how much she <laughs> honors you for, for your own um, choices as well. There's another very ironic part of the story where one of the first physicians, I I believe I have the timeline right, but correct me if I'm wrong. You had decided to get treatment and to become open about what was going on with you. And the first physician that supposedly evaluated you asked you very directly, are you sure you want to do this? Do you really want to do this? Because he was warning you about the effects that it would very likely, if not definitely, have on your career. And it did, at least for a while. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And, and 
You know, it, it's it's less about the man and or his intentions and more about the culture that has constructed somebody to feel like that they need to give that sort of counseling or guidance, right? And sure. I, I believe in my heart and still do to this day that the intentions were pure and wanting to be helpful. But at the same time, we've created this construct, not just in medicine, but in education, in in the military and you know and first responders and pilots and and right. etc that like these are blemishes and red flags and you know you very well may not be able to serve or have a career in these spaces if you have these uh red flags by your by your name and so i think that that was his intention of raising my awareness but at the same point, the last thing that you should do if you're in a space of trying to connect somebody to resources and, and who is actively suicidal or actively in, in substance use, you know, then is to give that type of advice, right? It, yeah. it, you know, for me, everything else and, you know, my career, my job, everything was secondary to to living and living a healthy life. And, um, and that's what I sort of needed in those moments. And so, you know, once again, part of sharing this story is to, there's a lot of self-stigmatization and institutional stigmatization that occurs all the time is to open up candid conversations about that and how we rebuild supportive work environments. Yeah. Well, I thought it was a powerful part of the story. I also, for the knowledge of whoever's listening, even psychologists, when I get my license renewal, I there are questions about have you sought mental illness or have you sought mental illness? Have you sought mental health treatment? And so, and you have to explain if you have, and you have to say, this is not going to affect my my role as a as a psychologist. But, you know, it can be called into question for sure. So it's very interesting. I understand on one level, but I've, I've also had um, first responders, they don't use their insurance, for example, or doctors don't. They don't, they don't use that because they don't want it anywhere on their record that they were seen by a mental health professional. So, um, and I live in a, a fairly small town in Arkansas, and it's even worse. I mean, in, I came from Dallas where therapy could be really anonymous, but people would say, well, I saw so-and-so coming in your office the other day, you know, so it's very different. So I, I thought that was something that we all have to struggle with. I've also been very open about having panic disorder. I have performance anxiety and uh, that has directly affected my life and I've had anorexia and that kind of thing. So anyway, I've tried to be very open and, and model that for others. And all the while thinking, Am I going to lose my practice because I've got on social media and said I have panic disorder? Even though it was somewhat irrational, it was like, well, you know, heal or heal, heal thyself kind of thing. Yeah. And you're right. And, you know, all of that is is true and exists in, in some aspects. And I also think that there's just a lot of fear-based culture that um, around that where, you know, I personally – Personally, I know that once again, there's there are war stories out there, but you know, don't know any of my friends who have been on Zoloft and sought depression treatment that work in a medical workforce that you know have ever not been able to you know get a job, 
right? And, right. and so, you know, addiction is a is definitely a, a, a different, is treated through a different lens. But one of the things I'm most proud of here in Indiana and in the institutions that I work is, you know, one, I was on this small committee and as a alcoholic in recovery, um, invited to sit on this 10-person task force to rewrite the substance use and diversion policy for our entire state and institution, that it was no longer criminality and termination and firing, but let's get this person into resources and help first. Yes. A huge major step in culture shift um, that we did a few years ago here at Indiana uh, University. And, and just recently, to your point about those questions that come up on you know, job applications, that we removed all the mental health and addiction questions from every licensing and credentialing um, you know, for our job application process, which was a four-year process to get to this point. Wow. But um, you know, I was able to spearhead and be the chair of this this committee that led that and um, and it, just in the last few months, it's been approved and rolled out. And it's just, um, I think that those are the things hopefully on a, on a policy level that can really affect change so that people won't feel that they have to not use their insurance and hide this away, but can seek treatment very openly. That's very exciting. So I started self-work because I was trying to help educate people about what talking with a therapist would be like. And so, you know, whatever, at least, you know, what I'm like. <laughs> and so what what was helpful to you about therapy? Hmm. You know, I, I've been... I've been blessed to have some really wonderful therapists in, in many different states as my career has moved around. And I, first and foremost, you know, I'm very privileged, um, not just as a, a white male physician, but as also somebody who has access to resources and can utilize mm-hmm. therapy in a, you know, a really continuous way. And and so I, first of all, always like to acknowledge that because I um, we have such a poor national infrastructure to be able to support and get the resources we need of mental health services. My dad was a mental health counselor for 40 years in a small town and I saw it break from the inside out with funding over his career. So sorry for that tangent, but to set it up okay. to say, you know, that, that therapeutic relationship, especially for somebody who works in really emotional, salient, powerful, sometimes just utterly heartbreaking, traumatizing moments of death and loss and tragedy, that for me, it helps to be able to pour that out in a safe space where I have an objective lens to help me reframe you know what I'm feeling what I'm experiencing to help me really build my own self-awareness of what's happening around with my behaviors and and you know and I've just learned so much about who I am and how I see the world around and how I interact and it really challenged me is me to continue to do the hard work that of progress not perfection of and so you know I I love that if and if nothing else, it's a safe space that I can scream into a pillow for an hour. And and that's helpful, too. Mm-hmm. Certainly during the pandemic, I have several medical professionals as patients, and they have really had to 
do that emotional work that you're talking about uh, to a, a much larger scale than they have had in the past. So I appreciate those comments. And perhaps those of you who are in the medical profession currently will think about seeking therapy because it really can be a place where you can, how would you say it, where you can be, begin to release some of those emotions. Is that what you would say? Yeah, that's very fair. And um and we just don't uh, do well enough or have supportive or crafted environments to be able to do that consistently in real time. So it's good to have that. And and really, I think necessary. And I always counsel that everybody who works in medicine should go to therapy. Um, and that's what I always lecture and preach and teach our students. But, you know, it's it's one thing to preach that. It's another thing to show that through vulnerability and authenticity and 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 practice it. Right. And so I, I try to do more of the latter. In the little memo I sent you, I told you that twice a year I do a little one and a half hour presentation on therapy to medical students. And I can always tell the people who have already started down that path of I don't do emotions, <laughs> you know, um, they are as tuned out as they possibly can be, you know, to what I'm trying to say to them. Anyway, it's it's just amazing that it starts happening that soon in medical training. It's actually sort of ingrained in the culture and taught that way, you know, to be tougher, to grind, to move on to the next thing, to bottle, don't get too emotional in front of your patients, right? And so it's actually sort of uh, inherent and for a long time into how we're told to practice. Yeah. I would love in this Maybe it's not pertinent necessarily to your book, but I mean, this strong message, but I would love for you to talk about what you do. You're a palliative oncologist kind of care physician. I probably didn't label that correctly. Yeah. So, um, so two, two scopes of practice initially, I was a pediatric oncologist. So took care of children living through cancer. I pivoted my career about seven years ago to really focusing on pediatric palliative care, which Mm -hmm. in essence is helping patients and families live the best quality life possible when you may, when they may be facing a life limiting medical condition or, Mm -hmm. or uh, an acutely life threatening one. And so it takes on a lot of different actual roles of helping families make decisions, just feel supported in the decisions they make, sometimes treating pain and symptoms and um, helping them figure out what their goals are, um, what what we can accomplish together, knowing what they're going through with their medical condition. So it's really, to me, um, beautiful, inspiring, often difficult and emotionally you know, you have to be emotionally available in, in, in the job every single day, but it's deeply rewarding to have the privilege of being in that space when somebody is navigating some of the most difficult times in their lives and being able to show up and try to make a difference in that, to me, is really purposeful work. You know, some of the stories you tell about specific children that one wanted to say goodbye to you. I think his name was Nick. Do I have that correct? And other stories of these bonds that you formed with these children. That's just, again, it's just a part of the book that really lets us get to know the kind of medicine you're talking about and how you can balance that kind of emotional availability with still making, being a good decision maker and having a sense of, I don't get lost in that, but I connect with it, but I don't get lost in it. So, And I think they're one in, in the same. And 
being emotionally available and building that relationships, you know, aren't an impediment to helping a family navigate that instead of they're a tool. Mm-hmm. And so there are three stories in the book and I highlight them in the front inscription that are not amalgamations or pseudonyms or anything. Most of the stuff are pseudonyms and protected because they have to be for HIPAA. And But, you know, Nick's story is Nick's story and that's his name. And have permission of his family to share that and stay in touch with them and still to this day. And, you know, his story and our experience together is is much deeper than medicine. It's, a, you know, it's about life and, and love and showing up for other people in their moments of need. He gave to me and I tried my best to give to him. And it was much deeper and grounded in that shared humanity. And same with his parents. And And that's, you know, the calling of the work that I feel, once again, blessed to be able to do is not sit in front of a desk and write a prescription pad, but to really be there. Yeah. Well, that comes across loud and clear. Again, I want to say the name of the book, and you published this last year, or 2019, actually. It's Long Walk Out of the Woods by Dr. Adam Hill. And uh, Adam, thank you so much for being here. As I said before we got started recording, I've been really excited. I actually met Adam on Twitter where I'm not there very much, but and you are, but <laughs> it's so fun to read some of what you, you write about and your sense of humor and just, I thought, oh, I want to get to know this guy. <laughs> so I'm delighted to get to talk to you today. No, I, I really appreciate that. It was a lovely conversation and um, thank you for the opportunity to highlight this work. You bet. Take care. I know you're just as impressed with Adam as I was and still am after this interview. If you want to know more about him, again, he's on Twitter, and I will have his book, Long Walk Out of the Woods, in the show notes for you to download and purchase. I read the whole book cover to cover. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I learned a lot about what actually happens when you're in recovery and just how tough it can be. Thank you so much for joining us here at Southwark today. I'm always delighted you're here, but especially when I have an interview with such a special guest as Adam Hill. Thank you so much for reviews and ratings you've left, either for my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, which Adam and I both realize our work is very, very similar and that we're both trying to talk about perfectionism gone viral when it can be very dangerous for the person who's practicing that. And of course, your reviews wherever you listen, especially Apple Podcasts for self-work. I've told you many times, but it's just very true. You are my best marketing team because people do read those reviews and see, wow, she's got 900 or she's got whatever. And that means something to them. They say, well, if so many people like it, then I want to listen to it. So thank you very, very much. There are many ways of getting in touch with me. My website's drmargaretrutherford.com. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I'm on Instagram at drmargaretrutherford. And I have a closed Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash selfwork. I'd love to have you there. So once again, I'm very grateful you were here today. Take very good care in these more than difficult times. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.